I think where my work starts, you know, it starts with a, a concern about black progress, kind of at a real basic level. Why do we still see the persistence of certain problems? And I think that animates a lot of black intellectual work to begin with. You know, um, I start from a different place in the sense of thinking historically about not only the civil rights revolution of sorts, but also the critics of it, right? So even, even as we're seeing these campaigns during the 1950s and 60s that are mounting against Jim Crow segregation, there's a whole chorus of black voices that are saying this is not gonna be enough. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Last year, Cedric Johnson embedded himself at Art Center for a week-long residency. Included in that visit was a talk about the policing crisis, as well as a workshop with students exploring what it means to do good in the world through art and design. As a professor of political science and African-American studies at University of Illinois at Chicago, Cedric has dedicated his academic career to studying and writing about the relationship between class, race, and social change. His argument is explored in detail in his award-winning book, Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power, and the Making of African-American Politics. Cedric has a gift for communicating complex and sometimes disruptive ideas with warmth, clarity, and impressive skill. He emphasizes the importance of reversing class inequities, along with racial ones, by addressing the sources of persistent poverty. Of particular interest were his observations on the importance of decommodifying education, i.e. making it accessible to all students regardless of their ability to pay. This, he insists, is an essential stepping stone toward more diverse, equitable, and inclusive college campuses. Please enjoy my conversation with Cedric Johnson. I want to begin by exploring your background a little to get to know you and maybe take you back to Louisiana, where you're from. Sure, sure. So I, I grew up in um, a town called Opelousas, Louisiana, right in the heart of French-speaking Acadiana. That was my, my world for the most part as a kid. You still had many people who spoke French. My hometown is the birthplace of Zadiko music. And so that mm. was a part of the, the general backdrop as a, as a kid and a teenager. And really the biggest influence and maybe one of the things that pushed me towards academia was growing up in um, Holy Ghost Catholic Church, which was at the time the largest black Catholic congregation in the United States. You know, we had an activist pastor during my childhood, a guy by the name of Albert McKnight, who, uh, who led the church from the 70s all the way through the 90s and really transformed the town as a result. I mean, the town that I grew up in was majority black. Uh, it's one of the poorest jurisdictions in the country. And um, we were a majority black uh, jurisdiction, but we had, still had white rulers, right? We still had whites who were the elected leadership throughout the parish. 
and uh, McKnight came in and it was under his his leadership and sort of using the church as a political um, organization of sorts. We were able to elect the first black mayor and multiple city council persons, a, a black chief of police. And the, the town just completely transformed, right? We were engaged in protests when I was in high school, walkouts mm. against what, what we saw as a racist school consolidation uh, program. They were going to do away with a number of small high schools that were in black farming communities throughout the parish. And so, you know, uh, students, parents, everybody throughout the parish, teachers, we organized, we marched on the Capitol. In the end, we lost. Uh, the schools were built in, in areas that the school board planned on, on building them. Um, but I think it, for a lot of us, it was a lesson in how to, how to assert yourself, how to assert your will in the midst of, um, you know, opposition and, you know, sure. policies that you sure. disagree with. So that was the beginnings for me of like politicization and thinking about African-American history, African-American political struggles. And it kind of led me towards, you know, career in academia and, and into political science, to be honest. And just a little bit about where you went to college and found your way to, is University of Illinois your first uh, academic position? This was actually my second. I taught at uh, second one? Hobart and William Smith Colleges oh, yeah. in Western New York for 10 years before coming here. And I served as an adjunct at a bunch of schools when I lived in the D.C., uh, Washington, D.C. metro area. But uh, my undergrad, I, I went to Southern University in Baton Rouge, so what was at the time one of the largest... Uh, black colleges and also the only black college uh, university system, which was remarkable back then because it was open admissions. So, you know, truly like a, a equal opportunity institution. I mean, you had students who, um, you know, barely graduated high school or students who didn't finish high school and got a GED later who were uh, enrolled, as well as students who, um, you know, ended up going to Yale after they finished from, from Southern, right? So it was a good mix of students, a lot of different backgrounds, different abilities, different experiences. Um, and that was also another um, place that kind of pushed me more in the direction of academia as a, as a profession. So one more question in this regard. I am so compelled by your writing and your ability to write. And I'm just interested in where you discovered that skill, where you discovered your talent for that. What place does writing have in your life right now um, and how it operates? And does it help you think through your, the issues that you really want to get at, too? Right. So I, I had a great um, high school teacher uh, by the name of Rodney Johnson, your English teacher, who probably was the first person to really push me in terms of writing. And, you know, probably when I first started thinking about writing more as a craft and not just as a means, you know, a means to an end. Um, and then I think uh, another influence when I got to college was actually a peer of mine, uh, Rod Size, who's now an architect. He was a little bit older than I was. We grew up together. But I remember being a, a freshman and he sat me down and, and really, you know, helped me to think about how to make my how to bring my ideas to paper and how to develop an argument. And he really kind of pushed me in ways that I probably wasn't ready to receive when I was in high school. And um I think that first paper I wrote was on the civil rights movement and its limitations, which even at that time in the 80s was still a, a controversial argument to make in some some corners because we were all taught to revere, you know, the civil rights struggles as as almost like sacred, right? Really important uh, developments in African-American history. And I was trying to make a counter argument based on 
the kinds of problems that we were witnessing at that moment. You know, there's there's the crack cocaine epidemic. There's rising violence, you know, in American cities. And, you know, Rod was able to help me think through, like, how to take these these intuitions I had, these sort of scattered observations and really bring it to bear on an argument that might be persuasive. And I ended up making an A on that paper. And I think I was sold after that, right? It was kind of like, I can see how this works and I can see the power of the written word, you know? And, and, And I think for a kid, I was pretty shy as a kid. So I think writing was a way to get it done, you know, um, in, in a more complex way, a more compelling way than I could in, in conversations with people where, you know, oftentimes, you know, if somebody was louder and more aggressive, you couldn't get a word in, but I found the the power of the, the written word, you know, and that was, that was it from, from there on out. I think I just kept, you know, trying to figure out ways to become a better, better writer. And I'm still doing that, you know. Of course. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, it's so interesting to hear about the seeds of these parts of your background and how they how they influenced you. I mean, because I can hear even in that story about the civil rights movement and your perception of it and your critical thought about it and your insights, the parallels that are going on today with how you're looking at the world as well. Yeah. What I'd like to do with really all respect to the complexity of, of your work is maybe ask you to talk about the core problem you see uh, regarding wealth inequality, uh, with regard to a destructive class system and state neglect, and all of which kind of interlocks and transcends certain race issues. And just summarize some of that kind of materialist analysis for our listeners so that they understand fundamentally where you're coming from. Then we can move to some of the particulars of art and design and higher ed. Sure. So, I mean, one way I can do it is to start with that paper, that collegiate paper I mentioned Um and the criticism of the failings or limitations of the civil rights movement. Because in a, in a sense, I've been writing that paper. Over and over again. Right, yeah. For the last right, 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 30 right. years at this point, right? I mean, a lot of it grows out of being a, a child of the post-civil rights or post-segregation era and trying to make sense of that, right? Um, I think where my work starts, you know, it starts with a, a concern about black progress, kind of at a real basic level. Um, why do we still see the persistence of certain problems. And I think that animates a lot of black intellectual work to begin with. You know, um, I start from a different place in the sense of thinking historically about not only the civil rights revolution of sorts, but also the critics of it, right? So even, even as we're seeing these campaigns during the 1950s and 60s that are mounting against Jim Crow segregation, there's a whole chorus of black voices that are saying this is not going to be enough, that this is going to be help. This is necessary to sort of do away with these blatant forms of legal discrimination. But it's not going to be enough to change the conditions that so many black people face. Right. So people like uh, Malcolm X is making that argument. Doesn't make any difference what else you have. If you don't have some place to rest your head, you're in bad shape here in Harlem. The reason we say that housing is such a a key problem, when you live in a poor neighborhood, you're living in an area where you have to have poor schools. When you have poor schools, you have poor teachers. When you have poor teachers, you get a poor education. And when you get a poor education, you you are uh, destined to be a, a poor man and a poor woman the rest of your life. So it's a very vicious cycle. Ella Baker is saying the same thing. A nice gathering like today is not enough. You have to go back and reach out 
to your neighbors who don't speak to you. And you have to reach out to your friends who think they are making it good and get them to understand that they, as well as you and I, cannot be free in America or anywhere else where there is capitalism and imperialism until, 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 until we can get people to recognize that they themselves have to make the struggle and have to make the fight for freedom every day, in the year, every year, until they win it. Thank you. You know, she basically points out, what good is it to be able to sit at the lunch counter if you can't afford, you know, uh, a hamburger, right? Mm. And, you know, the other people like, like Harold Cruz, who had been a former communist, right, who's making the argument that, you know, basically black people cannot be integrated into American society on its current terms because this particular kind of capitalist, you know, uh, economy produces, you know, uh, surplus people. It produces unemployment. It has to have some level of dispossession in order for it to, to function, right? So, you know, the, the Black Panthers would come along and make similar arguments, right? So there are all sorts of different voices during the 60s and even earlier that are pointing out the limitations of a liberal integrationist project. And I think my work aligns with some of that, you know? So I see it as, as necessary. Uh, I know that the expansion of the Black middle class during the 1970s and 80s, my own experiences, you know, growing up in Louisiana and having certain opportunities in terms of collegiate education, those things are all made possible by major civil rights reforms, but there's a set of class problems that aren't resolved by that, right? They actually worsened in the wake of the end of, of formal Jim Crow segregation. And so that's really where I think I start out intellectually. That beginning kind of leads me more to, you know, criticisms of neoliberalization, which black people experience in a really concrete way. You know, a lot of the gains that were made during the 60s are rolled back, whether it's the, you know, weakening of anti discrimination regulations or deep cuts to the public sector that affect public sector workers where blacks are disproportionately represented or removing, you know, very basic supports like, uh, you know, welfare assistance or public housing, right, where blacks, again, are disproportionately represented. All of those things together as they're swept aside have like this huge impact on um, black life across the country and across different social layers, right? So middle-class Blacks are feeling it, as well as working-class and poor um, Blacks. And so I think, you know, that also is an important part of what, I, what I'm trying to, to wrestle with in my work. And I think it's also where we get Black Lives Matter as a phenomenon, right? Black Lives Matter emerges from the dissonance that's created by, on the one hand, neoliberalization and the rollback of these various protections and what that means for working class life more generally, but in particular, you know, black people who are uniquely situated. And then at the same time, the election of the first black president. I mean, I think that's where uh, some of the concerns come from, why Black Lives Matter resonates, because at the same time that we're seeing places like Detroit, where, you know, before the subprime mortgage crisis, I think 70 percent of mortgages in that city were owned by blacks. 
that's pretty much cut in half as a result of the subprime mortgage crisis. So you've got that kind of real felt pain on, on the part of so many people. And yet at the same time, a post-racial rhetoric that takes hold whenever Obama is elected, which says that we're beyond all of this and that, you know, race as a set of concerns, you know, and, and focus on racism is is no longer relevant, right? So I think for some people, the dissonance between those two becomes too much to bear and Black Lives Matter is a perfect way of calling attention to the problem and viral videos of black people being killed is the most graphic evidence against any sort of post-racial uh, narrative. So that's sort of where, where the work kind of emerges from. I know that's not maybe the, the summary of the, the conceptual focus so much, but but it helps. And Black Lives Matter is an interesting example. And maybe we can go just a little bit further with that because it's um, well understandable and you give a, a very compelling uh, sense of how it's born. It's more, I believe you call it a sentiment than a fully formed political force. It doesn't sufficiently consider the neoliberal capitalist core issue that you identify. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that because it's so important at this moment historically. Right. I mean, I think it sort of speaks to those conditions without necessarily providing us with a clear analysis of them and a, and a route, a way forward, a way out of the problems. Part of that has to do, I mean, it even misdiagnoses the policing problem, which is one of the arguments I make in my, in my own work. And I think social media intensifies part of the problem, right? It, it creates this situation where we, you know, seeing is believing, right? You see one video of a black person unarmed being killed by police. You see another one a week or so later. And what we might forget, and what I think many of the consumers of this media forget is that it's it's being curated. And oftentimes, um, if something doesn't fit the narrative, right? If a particular incident doesn't fit the narrative, it's not included, right? It's no longer, it doesn't get swept up. It's not shared in the same ways. It doesn't reinforce what people think they already know. Um, and a lot of other folks have pointed this out, right? When you look at the numbers, going back for a couple of decades, right? Blacks are never really the majority of people who are killed by police in terms of, you know, civilians killed by police and arrest-related incidents. Blacks are overrepresented in those numbers, but there are many people who are uh, victims of police violence. The question for me then becomes, why can't we see that, right? Why aren't we able to, to do both at the same time? On the one hand, say that there's a racial dimension to this, but there's also a bigger problem and that there must be something that people have in common, whether it's in Chicago or San Diego or some rural part of the country. Whenever a person is, is arrested or killed by police or subjected to the, the carceral order. Something that transcends race, you mean? Right. Absolutely. And I think that's what that's what's missing from some of the, the arguments. Right. So. On the one hand, you know, Black Lives Matter brings so many people to the streets. It's a powerful way of, powerful right. means of mobilization. But on the other, it constantly misses the deeper problem, right? Which for me is not just a problem of racism or a new form of Jim Crow, but it's a, it's a deeper problem in our economy where we have millions of Americans who are uh, obsolete, right? They have no means to sustain themselves. They are unemployed and in some cases unemployable, and they oftentimes rely on criminalized forms of work and survival crimes in order to make it. And therefore, they're the ones who bear the brunt of policing in cities, but also in small towns, in the most populous parts of the country, but even in states where there are relatively few blacks and Latinos, right? So I think 
we have to think in those terms. That's frustrating for some people who committed to a Black Lives Matter uh, framework. But I think we can do both. I think we can condemn, you know, the racist aspects of policing and our society, and at the same time, try to figure out a way uh, to address this other uh, problem of sort of structural unemployment in the society. One of the things that I found so interesting that you discussed in this regard was the fact that what the police are enforcing is the very class system that is the core of the problem. That, in fact, what the police are doing is they're keeping the poor and the vulnerable away from those of us who live a comfortable life. And that's the division. That's the barrier. And that's the kind of enforcement that's going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is um, this has been the, the logic for a long time, right? And that's why, you know, in my own work, I've tried to focus more on um, the post-war transformation of American cities and how that's the place where the kind of policing regime that we have now, where it begins. There are a number of, of academics who like to focus on this kind of longer history of paddy rollers or slave-catching patrols back during the, the antebellum period or the ways that Black people are criminalized during those early waves of migration to cities during the 1910s and 20s. Um, I choose to focus on a much later period because I think the very language that's embraced uh, after World War II, the ways that people begin to think about their own property and their own concerns or anxieties about uh, theft, their own fears about cities, a lot of these things take shape much later than what a focus on antebellum you know, slavery might lead us to believe. There's also the part that, you know, just to kind of add another dimension to it, you know, most prisons and jails, you know, the majority of them in the country are majority white until a uh, fairly late period. It's not really until the 1980s that we see those numbers shift dramatically, you know, with the second wave of the war on drugs. And so, you know, for me, it's really in the post-war context, you know, as so many Americans are now becoming middle class, they have much more in the way of, of uh, assets, houses, automobiles. They're leaving the city and leaving behind whatever dangers and problems there were in the city. That's when we really see the expansion of policing and a more uh, clearly articulated role for police as protectors of middle class property, but also middle class virtue, right? They're seen as role models for the middle class. And where we, we find people like um, a lot of different figures who, who embrace law and order uh, rhetoric, right? We find them clearly, you know, playing to this divide, right? Whether it's Ronald Reagan in his 1964, you know, uh, gubernatorial race where he's talking about law and order or, you know, uh, Richard Daley here in Chicago in 68. I was disappointed to know that every policeman out on the beat was supposed to use his own decision. And this decision evidently was his. In my opinion, he should have had instructions to shoot arsonists and to shoot looters. Or uh, Nixon. It is time for an honest look at the problem of order in the United States. There is no cause that justifies resort to violence. 
let us recognize that the first civil right of every American is to be free from domestic violence. So I pledge to you, we shall have order in the United States. George Wallace. That's a good way to stop it. Uh, if you let the police knock somebody in the head who was breaking a plate glass window, or who was assaulting a policeman, who was assaulting a, uh, a person on the street, or throwing a firebomb, I think they'd be getting out mighty light if somebody knocked them in the head. So many figures begin to embrace it. I mean, and even now we hear it echoed in unsuccessfully yeah. by, by, by Trump, right? He's trying to appeal to this, again, this middle-class suburban fear, even though suburbs don't look like they did back in the 1960s and 70s, right? Um, Nor do cities, right? Right, right. He's trying to play the same sort of concerns or the same divide as he imagines it. So I think that's really where it begins. And it still matters, like especially in cities, places like Chicago, Los Angeles, where real estate development and um, gentrification is intimately tied to at least providing us with the sense that there's safety, that we don't have to worry about the same kinds of urban perils that, that discouraged investment in cities back during the 70s and 80s. Another really interesting insight that I read was your critique of uh, Blackout Tuesday, which I also think really reveals in all kinds of interesting ways some of the fundamental principles of what your critique is. And the fact that, you know, what was it, $2 billion were given to uh, anti-racism causes? I think it's even um, higher. Something. It's probably even higher It's now. even higher. <laughs> but again, your critique was that, that, le that let these corporations off the hook in a more fundamental way. And I think it's, it's a wonderful illustration of your point and invite you to talk about your perception of that as well. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty phenomenal um, to see the outpouring, you know, from so many different corners. And I'm of two minds with respect to this. So there's a part of me having talked to, to family members and friends who work for some of these corporations, which now all of a sudden embrace Black Lives Matter. There's an opportunity there, internal to those organizations, right, to, to do things differently. Um, and I, I suspect that some good will come from what some of these corporations do in their own workplaces, uh, the kinds of hiring they do over the next few years. And so I'm not totally against it, right? I, I hope that some good comes comes as a result of it. At the same time, I mean, it's just interesting to see some of the very companies that were totally opposed to the labor actions of essential workers only a few months before. You know, companies that were delivery based and logistics oriented that were relying upon, you know, these most vulnerable segments of the working class. Right. All of a sudden, or all of Black Lives Matter, even though they they totally attempted to crush black and brown workers and, you know, other workers who were trying to organize themselves and demand more protection, more safety in the workplace, better wages, overtime pay. So all of that stuff was irrelevant. So it just to me, it just showed how vacuous 
a particular kind of anti-racism could be, right? That it was an easy win to curate uh, a Black Lives Matter film series or to share resources with people or just to post at bare minimum, post some sort of message of, of dedication and commitment without necessarily um, addressing the kinds of, of concerns, right? That working class people have, and in particular, black and brown people who've been punished by our particular form of policing and, and mass incarceration. So it's an easy win. Luckily, I think a lot of, a lot of activists saw through it and were quick to, to point out its limitations. But what it also reveals, and this is something I think people find maybe more troubling, it also reveals that at its heart, Black Lives Matter was really, a, it's really a liberal idea, right? It's more about like, let's reassert or rearticulate the claim of black citizens to full citizenship and equal protection without necessarily getting into the more thorny questions of political economy, right? And I think that's where we see it run run its course, right? That it's it was always a pop slogan. It was a hashtag from the very beginning, not clearly articulated and therefore easily appropriated by uh, entrenched forms of power. And that insight, and this is how I wanted to make the connection to higher ed, but that insight is is relevant, certainly relevant to me. It challenges me as a leader of an institution of higher education mm-hmm. and in our efforts in diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and DEI and the extent to which one can articulate a similar ambivalence to that work that you articulated earlier, meaning, you know, it's, it's good and it's an important conversation, but is it really getting at the core problem? And are we really addressing underneath the real issues and maybe the real danger that exists beneath it. And again, as a transition to the world of higher ed, wonder about your own perceptions of what's going on in, in the academy right now with respect to diversity efforts. And is there a parallel to what you were just saying about Blackout Tuesday? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, there's, again, there's the possibility of change, right? You know, students on different campuses are, are really seizing this, this moment um, to press for different kinds of things. There's some things we can do immediate, right? So I think recruitment of, of black students, you know, is is always a, a challenge, recruitment and retention of black students on, on some campuses, even my own, right? You know, uh, here at UIC, where we have one of the most diverse campuses in the country. One place where we've been losing is recruitment and retention of black students, right? So we, we've seen our numbers decline, even though we're better off than a lot of people, the numbers of black students here on campus could be much better. It could be much more in line with the, the proportion of black students in the city of Chicago, but in the country more generally. And the way to do that, in my mind, it's to back it up with funding, right? With support, you know, material support for students and creating cohorts, right? I think is an important dimension of it all. You know, I was fortunate enough during, during graduate school to be a part of a, um, a PhD program where we had at least 18 African-American students enrolled at the same time. And, you know, everybody didn't graduate, but it helped to have like other people where you're not the only one, you're not one of two or three. And where there seemed to be a genuine commitment to us to see us actually go through the entire uh, process where we had the support financially, um, which is a huge barrier now for, for education, even even for undergrad education for a lot of students. And so that was big. 
So I think as much as we can keep uh, creating cohorts, but also providing the kind of financial resources, I think as long as we can do those things, um, you know, you can actually, you know, create a situation where uh, where there can be student success, right? And even for faculty as well, right? I mean, yeah, I, I, no, absolutely. And and I think at Art Center we have been doing, um, but now we're doing with much greater urgency and focus this kind of work and asking really important questions about who this education is for and struggling with. In the narrowness of our curriculum and struggling with issues of inclusiveness, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we are a small tuition-dependent private institution. And I'm interested in a few things there um, in terms of your insight. And that is, first of all, the role of the private institution at all in higher education and how you perceive that. We are tuition dependent with all the ramifications of what that means. Some of our students can get state and federal loans, but a lot of them are using either their own funds or they're borrowing a lot of money. It's out of whack. We rely on philanthropy and we do private bond issues, but that's also part of a system too. So the very economic structure that's behind the private institution like ours raises a lot of issues and a lot of questions, I think. And interested in your sense of that. Yeah, I... uh... I taught the first, uh, you know, 10 years of my career at a small private liberal arts college. Yeah. And um, I was trying to get away from that place <laughs> because I, <laughs> I had only attended public schools, you know, as an undergrad and a graduate student. And um, I really cherished the the public mission, right? I, I was like all about the kinds of institutions that made me, that allowed for all sorts of different people to, to, uh, to attend. And what I encountered at the private liberal arts college was something that was really truncated and, and exclusive, right? It was really sons and daughters of the probably lower echelons of the, the political elite. And maybe, you know, along with that, some black and Latino students who were there, but, you know, their numbers were small and they were also, in many cases, beneficiaries of targeted programs, which created another set of problems, right? They were They were viewed differently by the students who were paying tuition out of pocket, right? And when, when they looked at these these minority students. So, I mean, I, I see the value in it. I didn't have a problem after having been there for 10 years with it for what it did. But I think my commitment, my allegiance was always to uh, public education. And even in recent years, right, this idea of, you know, free higher education, you know, at all public institutions in, in the country. I mean, I think you know, as much as possible, if we could decommodify education, right? You know, it shouldn't just be based on, you know, one's ability to pay, right? you know, because there are many great people I know in grad school who were much smarter than I was, who just simply, for whatever reasons, because they had children or they had other commitments, they couldn't finish their their programs. The same was true for undergrads. So I think ideally, as a, as a political ideal, I'm in favor of free higher education. But with that said, I, I respect the role that small liberal arts colleges and small private institutions play because I think they can address the needs of certain kinds of students maybe more effectively than than large universities. So I think there's a way, you know, maybe we can reimagine higher ed that includes different kinds of institutions. But on the on the backside, I, I think that in terms of payment, just like healthcare, right? There's a way that we should be able to to take this out of the market, right? And it shouldn't just be based on on how much money you make, how much money your parents make, um, or how much loan debt you're willing to take on, right? 
So I think these are huge questions that and, and issues that we have to address going forward. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I'm, I'm dedicated to, as you point out, to reimagining what it could be or understanding how we might be able to break that. Though I probably go right back to some neoliberal systematic ways of approaching that, which maybe is the limitations of my own imagination as I go through it. We like to think about the work that we do as helping students confront problems and solve them. And the institution needs to do that, the very thing. And so there's a kind of meta lesson, meta educational process going on right now in, in, in how we respond and the creativity that we bring to that response, which is a great transition to a conversation I'd love to have with you about art and design and the role art and design can play in creating change from your point of view. And uh, I read a very interesting essay of yours, um, and I think a lot of people at Art Center have um, on the urban precariat neoliberalization and the soft power of humanitarian design. And I want to invite you maybe to talk about that and some of the maybe the difficulties or challenges with those who try to quote unquote do good with design and what that where that might lead. Yeah, you know that piece came out of the work I was doing on uh, post Katrina New Orleans, and um, you know I, I like a lot of people. Uh, you know, I was living in Western New York. I was totally outraged by what had happened in New Orleans. There are reports from New Orleans of uh, people trapped in buildings that have come down around them. They have made desperate calls to 911 asking for help, asking for rescue, but the rescuers can't get out. It's simply too dangerous right now in those plus 135 mile an hour winds to put any... My way of acting at that point, we didn't have you know, tons of research money for me to pack up. So I ended up uh, designing a first year seminar around the Katrina disaster. And we were able, you know, because so much money was flowing to support Katrina related things, we got a trip to New Orleans fully financed, you know, uh, for students to go down and do recovery work. And, you know, I had my reservations about volunteerism, but it was a way to get students down there. They were, uh, connected to a course. So we talked a lot about the issues in New Orleans. We talked about the history of the city beforehand. But what was clear once we hit the ground was how limited that approach was, like the whether it was the the, uh, you know, the alternative spring break model where people go down and paint houses or, you know, do immediate relief work. It was limited for a variety of reasons. So just to give you one one example, we, we went down in October of 2006, so about a year after the disaster, and the city was still in, in ruins, right? I mean, there were whole neighborhoods that were, you know, still empty. And um, the work was grueling. It was great, you know, in terms of pedagogy. It was a great experience for me because it accelerated the kinds of connections I typically would have with students, you know, that might take an entire semester. And uh, we worked in St. Bernard Parish, which is one of the suburbs of, of New Orleans, and we we spent time um, gutting and mucking a house, right? So we went into this one little um, ranch house and we just pulled out everything. I mean, it was buried at least maybe two and a half feet of mud inside of it. And um, it took us maybe almost three days to get to the bottom of it, to the carpet. And then we had to rip the carpet up and pull it out. We tore down all the drywall. And, um, you know, there's a huge mountain of debris outside the house by the time we got done. And, um, you know, it was great for the students because they got to meet with, with uh, homeowners and they got a chance to see what we had been talking about and, you know, what, what they had watched on, on various documentaries. 
But at one point, I brought in a bunch of guest speakers, locals, as well as, you know, one old classmate of mine who came to talk about her work on Katrina. And we had a moment where Bill Quigley, who was a professor at Loyola and an activist in, in, uh, in New Orleans, housing activist, came and spoke to us in an empty house on the street where we were working. And, you know, we're sitting on, you know, coolers and T-shirts or whatever spread out, kind of like an amphitheater style inside this house. And he starts talking about the, the local politics, what's happening in the city beyond our immediate work. And he, he, he begins to talk about this blood relative uh, ordinance that had been passed in St. Bernard Parish. You know, St. Bernard historically is overwhelmingly white. And um, he tells us about this blood relative ordinance, which, you know, basically says that you can't rent to anyone in St. Bernard unless they're your kin. And this is clearly a way of discriminating against blacks, but also uh, Latino workers who are flooding the area at that particular moment. And, you know, when, when he says that, I mean, we're already, we're already sort of aware of some of the problems, but it just brings the contradictions to a head because here we are helping people rebuild, you know, helping them to get back on their feet. And at least some of these residents, enough for a, a, a council majority, have voted to bar other people from renting in their, their area. And so when we saw that, it was like such a, um, a revelation that, you know, it's not enough to just go down and engage in good, you know, acts of goodwill. You actually have to become involved in the political landscape. And I mean, I think the, the example I've written about kind of going along with that um, more extensively um, is the Brad Pitt Make It Right uh, foundation, the project that was initiated after Katrina. And, you know, without going into a whole lot of details about it, you know, Pitt committed to build uh, about 150 homes, cutting edge, you know, homes with uh, gray water recycling systems and uh, solar panels, you know, various strategies for dealing with a potential flood, catastrophe, houses that can pretty much exist off the grid. And, you know, this is all amazing. And to be honest, this was important for Louisiana because at that point, you know, uh, green technology was not at the forefront of a lot of building in, in Louisiana. But here you almost have like a showcase in the lower ninth ward, one of the historically, you know, majority black, but also very poor parts of the city. And um, that was great in some ways. The problem is that you know, it's it's sort of a, a, a drop in the bucket when it comes to the, the sheer housing needs in the city. And it also stands in stark contrast to what was also happening at the same time, right? So Brad Pitt is able to bring in, you know, uh, Shingeru Ban and all these other architects, uh, David Ajaye, to come in and do these showcase houses. Donated a million dollars, so you're going to basically write every that's house. Right. Your goal is to write all of them, is that right? Yep, that's the goal, that's the plan. And we've had some really fun response. Last night we had an anonymous donor of a million dollars. So it's it's working, it's it's really working. It's, where, it's, it's that thing we talked about of people coming together. But at the same time, thousands of black New Orleanians are being essentially barred from the city because public housing is being demolished, right? So there's mm -hmm. kind of like this celebration of a small scale demonstration project, you know, with a lot of great technology. And yet at the same time, you know, um, 
the removal of what would have been the basis of the right of return for so many New Orleanians um, at the at the very same very same time frame. And I think that for me, another kind of real stark example that, you know, you have to be involved in the political fight, you know, for, you know, who gets to rebuild, who's going to be included, that it's not enough to just rely on, you know, nifty technological solutions if they're not going to be broadly available, you know, to the population. What would have happened differently had Brad Pitt decided, I'm going to throw my money in the lobbying to make sure that public housing is not only rebuilt uh, and revitalized, but it's actually sustainable as a way of, of creating, you know, uh, housing for people in the city. So a lot of problems, you know. Yeah, but very powerful and very relevant, I think, too. I mean, there are many, one can imagine many ways to approach that challenge and that problem. But certainly education is one way. And certainly the kind of education that we create and the kind of way in which we educate designers seems to be pretty fundamental to the very point that you're making. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit more, if we can extrapolate out of that, about how you see art design as a function of creating change? We like to explore the question of change uh, a lot in this podcast. It, it's you know it's fundamental to what what it's all about. I'm just I'm curious about your thoughts on that and uh, the role artists and designers can. I mean, you just touched on one, I think, importantly, but how you think about that? What you would challenge us to think about as an institution that educates these creative people? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as you mentioned education, I just think being aware of the context that you're working in and how particular solutions, you know, design solutions might be adopted. Will they be adopted in a in an ad hoc or a manner that, that excludes, right? Or will, will they be a part of some solution that is carried out in a way that, that has universal or broad benefits, I think is the is the, the trick, you know, in my mind. And, you know, we've seen historically, right, um, moments where, you know, designers, architects um, have had huge impacts on the United States and on particular populations. Just a couple weeks ago, I was in Tennessee in Knoxville and I walked past the, uh, I was with a friend of mine, we walked past the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, Credit Union. Uh, we also spent some time for a moment in uh, a park that was set up by the Civilian Conservation Corps um, during the New Deal uh, years. And it was pretty remarkable. I mean, here was this park that people were still using. There were folks out fishing, boating, um, beautiful landscape. There was a beach, you know, a man-made beach that was there, which would, you know, in warmer months would have been filled with people. And these were all designed solutions, right? They were, you know, responding to a need for leisure. Uh, in the case of the Tennessee Valley Authority, responding to 
the need for economic development and infrastructure in a part of the country that really needed those things. Um, but I think the difference was, you know, a combination of democratic uh, input as well as design expertise. Um, and, and maybe that's, you know, again, that's the combination that I think is, is magical or can be in some ways when you bring, you know, the, the reach of the state with the creativity of intellectuals, designers, artists, right? You know, I think that's, that's one of the magical things about the, the New Deal, you know, despite its limitations, that we did see for a time uh, a number of different projects, whether it was the construction of post offices with beautiful murals and other decorations, you know, uh, literacy programs, oral history projects, all sorts of things that were conducted um, through the state as the vehicle, but with, you know, with harnessing the creative capacities of writers, designers, architects. That's something that we haven't really seen effectively under neoliberalization. You know, I think it's something that we should try to return to. So that would probably probably be probably be my wish or my desire. A couple of things in response to that. First of all, I see you as part of that and your own creativity is opening our eyes. I mean, part of what artists bring to our lives is uh, helping us see things anew or taking the familiar and really trying to Put them in a different context in a different light and opening our eyes to things that we don't even pay attention to anymore but you do it you do it i'm trying <laughs> are you hopeful cedric do you have hope at this moment yeah it's tough I, I think i do most days uh i think this last summer has been uh inspirational in so many ways like seeing people uh take to the streets and the process of you know, witnessing people's changes, right? That the people who weren't paying attention to police violence last year, who maybe didn't quite see it as the problem that it is, who now have been awakened by by what happened. So there's, there's a part of me that's, I'm optimistic when I see things like that. You know, teaching gives me optimism, right? You know, hearing students and what they're thinking about the world, uh, being a parent, you know, also, um, you know, watching the way that my my uh, kids have evolved um, gives me some some reason to have faith and, and be optimistic. But it's still a fight, right? <laughs> it's still a fight when you watch, you know, where we are in this moment, right? Where there's there's both mass protests, you know, against racism, but there's also virulent uh, right wing forces that are are emboldened by this moment. And I don't think that, you know, a defeat of, of Donald Trump electorally will mean the end of that. I think those those forces have been unleashed. The genie is out of the bottle and it won't go back into that bottle very easily. I think there's a there's a lot of work to be done in front of us, but most days I'm pretty optimistic. Uh and and also just kind of curious. I'm trying to take more of a position of you know, let's wait and see what what happens here, you know, because um, I would have never anticipated this summer, you know, unfolding as it did, you know, back in even in March or, or February this year. Up to that point, Black Lives Matter was a dormant movement. You know, who would have who would have expected, you know, the kind of outpouring, which is still reverberating. I mean, protests in Nigeria now against, you know, this special robbery uh, unit. Uh, with youth pouring out into the streets. So I think, you know, we don't really know. I think that's one thing. I'm old enough now to know that I can't, I'm not good at predicting th things. 
And, um, you know, I've never been that part of uh, that kind of political scientist who's in the predictions. But I just think um, there's a lot happening right now. You know, I think the country is lurching towards something different. The Trump phenomenon is a reaction to the more urbane, cosmopolitan, diverse nation that we're becoming. But I don't think it can stop it. Right? I don't think it's going to stop, you know, what a city like Los Angeles or Chicago or Detroit looks like. Right. And, and the kind of expectations that people have in these cities um, and really the, the, the promise of them. Right. I think that, you know, that what we're seeing is in Trump is the most uh, reactionary and, and um, you know, ugly manifestation of Americanism. But um, but there are millions of other people who don't agree with that vision and who are fighting against it tooth and nail. So that's that's where I find inspiration and, and my optimism. You may not be um, a predictor of the future, but you um, your insight and your analysis and your thoughtfulness and your exquisite writing really at least put the questions out there in really powerful ways. And oh, man, I, I appreciate it, man. We're so grateful to you for, for what you bring, and I've just learned so much, and I, I, I'm grateful to you for taking this time and for all the good work you're doing. Thanks so thank much. You. Thank you for this. Yeah. Appreciate it. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to thank our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, Editor Emily Van Bergen and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. If you like what you've heard and want to hear more of it, please take the time to review and give us a star rating in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.